With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good morning and welcome to Insight, a show about empowering our community. I'm Lorraine Ballard-Morrill. If you walk along parts of Kensington Avenue near Allegheny, it can feel like a hellscape. With folks shooting up, nodding off, hypodermic needles scattered over the sidewalk. But that's not who Kensington is. There are a lot of strong community activists and residents who are coming together as never before to push the city to come up with a comprehensive plan to deal with this crisis. We check in with City Councilwoman Maria Quinones Sanchez, whose district covers that neighborhood. About 90 out of 100 couples will get pregnant within a year of trying. But what about that 10%? We talk about infertility, especially as it impacts communities of color. But first, if you are a nonprofit, you will definitely want to hear about this major chance to get game-changing funding. We have this incredible opportunity that we're going to share with you today. In honor of 100 years of service, Philadelphia Foundation is inviting community members to select local nonprofits to receive a million-dollar key to community grants. Now the application period is open for nonprofits to submit online until the end of this month. We're talking big money here. And to tell us all about it is Diane Melly, who is Executive Director, Second Century Initiatives and Corporate Partnerships from the Philadelphia Foundation. So... That's a lot of money to give out to some nonprofits. Tell us exactly what it's the purpose of this is and why you're doing it this way. Thank you so much for having me. The Philadelphia Foundation, as you said, is celebrating its 100th anniversary. So we wanted to launch a signature, first-of-a-kind grant-making initiative to really accelerate the impact of change that not-for-profits are having on the civic, economic, and social vitality of our region. So this million dollars will be distributed through nine different awardees in three different categories, looking to reach a very broad base of solutions throughout the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, those three categories are economic prosperity, the digital divide, and community and civic engagement. This rather large amount of money is being divided into several tiers of grants. Can you tell us about those tiers? Yes. So it's a million dollars total. We have the three different categories, and the top grant awardees in each of the three categories will receive $200,000 grants, which are very significant. The second prize winners will receive $100,000 grants, and the third prize winners will receive $33,000 grants. So very significant money to be able to take an idea that has been implemented, that is showing progress, that is showing impact, and deepen the roots of that idea, expand that solution, and have it grow for the future to have the greatest impact. These three categories, economic prosperity, the opportunity divide, community and civic engagement, they're all terrific topics to uh, to support organizations in, in their missions to achieve those things. There's so many different types of nonprofits. How do you sort of make it kind of flatten the opportunity table so that those who may not normally think that they would deserve such a huge grant would be able to be just as uh, 
accessible to this as, as anyone? So that's an excellent question. First of all, these grants are open to all not-for-profits uh, throughout the seven-county region that we serve. You can visit our website at philafound.org, and there is an eligibility wizard on the site, but this is open to all not-for-profits that have effective solutions in those three areas. And to level the playing field, uh, the Philadelphia Foundation is hosting, we recorded on our website, an information session to encourage people to think about who they're currently partnering with and how that solution is working and to expand that to partner with others. We also will be providing uh, social media support to get the word out for these not-for-profits to encourage people. And one of the most exciting things that we haven't shared is that this process, uh, this $1 million, these nine grant recipients, we will have a process that we receive all of the proposals and then we will have an expert panel of judges that select the semifinalists. And in this first of a kind public grant making program, we will empower the public to select the winners. So we think leveling the playing field is really calling for all voices of residents throughout the seven county region to vote for their favorite, for the mission that they care about and the solution that they think this money will really help fuel the most. That is great. So on the 29th, that is the deadline for the application. And then when does the voting begin? Great question. So we are open again, encouraging all not-for-profits throughout the region to apply. It's a very short, uh, easy seven-question application process with a small eligibility quiz. Uh, We're open now. You can go to the website now uh, and apply directly online and get your applications in by April 29th, Monday, April 29th at 5 p.m. We will then go through this expert judging panel and we will actually ask the public to follow us on social media to watch the journey of these not-for-profits through the process. And on July the 8th through July the 26th, we will be open to have the public weigh in and actually make those final decisions. So the top vote getters will get the first prize, the second prize, and the third prize. And Uh, Residents will be able to vote daily, one vote in each of those three categories should they choose. That's awesome. So you're really encouraging not only the well-established nonprofits, but maybe some of these really great grassroots organizations that are making a difference in their own little communities. They're effective and they haven't the ability to scale up and this would be their opportunity. So you want everyone to, to who thinks they might be able to apply to apply. That is excellent example, Lorraine, because that's exactly what we want. This is a one-time injection of capital to take those ideas that we know are happening in one neighborhood or in one county, and the organization is doing fantastic work, and they need that money to expand and deepen the roots and get attention to the powerful work that they're doing. Uh, so we're really looking to hear from not-for-profits uh, of all sizes that meet the eligibility and really looking really excitedly to have the public weigh in and make the decisions. What a great opportunity. What is that website one more time? www.philafound.org. Everything is posted on the site for you to uh, access. Fantastic. So even if you think you are not capable of doing this, you've never done anything quite like this before. If you are a registered nonprofit and you think you're really making a difference and you want to blow up, this is your chance. This opportunity is, uh, doesn't come around that often. And we're very, very appreciative of the Philadelphia Foundation for offering this in conjunction with several 
commercial organizations that are really underwriting some of this, right? No one organization can do it alone. The Philadelphia Foundation, throughout its 100 years, has really been a connector, an activator, and a doer. We're expert in the not-for-profit world uh, and understanding the capabilities of our not-for-profit sector. And we very much are for-profit, our corporate partners, are key to this initiative and to many others. So a special thank you to Comcast NBC Universal who is co-sponsoring with us on the Opportunity Divide grants and to Wells Fargo for their partnering on the Economic Prosperity grants. Yes, that is terrific. So we want to thank them and we want to thank you for joining us today. Diane Melly, who's Executive Director, Second Century Initiatives and Corporate Partnerships from the Philadelphia Foundation. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Lorraine. I'm going to get a little personal here and uh, talk about my own past of infertility. I wanted to get pregnant when I got married, but was not able to. And I went through all the fertility treatments that were available at the time. Eventually, we decided to adopt. And I'm very happy to say that I was a very happily adopted, adoptive parent. Uh, my son, Christopher, is a blessing and I couldn't be happier. But nevertheless, Infertility is an issue that affects so many couples, and we're going to be talking about infertility, particularly in communities of color. Joining us in the studio right now is Nichelle McKelvey-Polston. She is a journalist, and she's also an infertility advocate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Lorraine. So I just want to say that I seriously thought I had life all figured out and Mm. never thought that this would be my walk at all. Right. But... I'm very thankful for it. I feel like it's a blessing to talk about something that most women are afraid to talk about. So many suffer in silence, especially black women. And well, I that's the thing that's that. very interesting in, in that you, you tend to not have the conversation about infertility in communities of color. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to, to get the conversation out in the open and have an open conversation about it. Tell us a little bit about your own personal story. As I mentioned, I thought I had life all figured out. I achieved a lucrative career, check, marriage, check. By age 32, I said, oh, well, let's see if, you know, we could expand and and grow a family. And it did not happen right away. And immediately I became embarrassed. I said, oh, what's wrong with me? And I held it in for so long that one day I decided to stand in my truth and standing in my truth gave birth to the website give me a ring and a baby and I know it's a funny title but (laughs) I had this one friend who would call me all the time and talk about her struggle to find the perfect mate and then I started to open up about my struggle to get pregnant and it was then I decided to seek help I went to a doctor and I was diagnosed with something called unexplained infertility. Which oh, that's the worst diagnosis ever. The, yes, exactly. I felt like, why don't I have endometriosis or PCOS or just fibroids, anything, but unexplained. So here, doctors can't figure out what's wrong on my end. But it was just a, a big struggle. And so I just felt the need to talk about it and be that one person to share my story to hopefully get others to share theirs. You know, I think uh, having gone through the infertility journey myself, Mm -hmm. um, I think that um, a lot of times people on the outside of it can 
inadvertently, by accident, not really meaning to, say things that are insensitive. And I wonder if we can talk a little bit about yes, that. Yes, yes. I often would get unsolicited advice on how to get pregnant. Right. Oh, just lay there. Oh, do this and do that. And I said, well, thank you, but no thank you. Most people think that they're helping and they're really not. And as a journalist, it's so funny. I'm used to or trained to ask questions. It wasn't until I was diagnosed with unexplained infertility that I started to scale back on questions. I started to rethink and just think about some of the things that I would ask people. And so when it came to people questioning myself, I just felt the need to just stand in my truth. But I know not everyone else or not everyone is strong enough to do just that. And so my advice to women is to let someone know that uh, that's not an appropriate question or that's inappropriate or uh, that's not something that I want to share. It's a personal, that's a personal question. So I would advise women to just not clam up and hide, but be open, whether it's telling your story or telling the person that you feel uncomfortable. Right. And and on the uh, opposite side of things, that sometimes friends want to be sensitive and may feel reluctant to talk about things like their own children around you. Did you ever find that to be true? Yes, I had some friends who they were afraid to tell me that they were pregnant or afraid to invite me to a baby shower. But I had to share with them, hey, I'm not jealous of you in any way, shape or form. I love to hear when people share their stories of getting pregnant. I still envision myself as a mother, maybe not in a traditional way. I have this one young lady. She called me on Mother's Day. Now, most people would think that this is a very insensitive thing to do. But she called me on Mother's Day and she said, Happy Mother's Day. And I looked at the phone with disgust. (laughs) How dare you? Why would you call me and say that? And she said, Nichelle, I know that this is awkward, but I want you to know that you are a mother, maybe not in a traditional sense, but you can give love to children who aren't loved in the community. You are a mother to your niece. You are a mother to your nephew. And that started to change my way of thinking. You know, oftentimes we think you're only a mother if you get pregnant and give birth. Mm -hmm. There are so many options rather to be a mother, as you mentioned your story. Mm -hmm. And so once I changed my mindset, I I still kind of consider myself a mother. Yeah, It's just not the way most people think. And that doesn't make me less than a woman. I'm all woman, <laughs> but a beautiful woman, by the way. Yeah, thank you. But yeah, I had to change my mindset pretty much. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really uh, wise and interesting thing that your friend did um, that allowed you to kind of rethink your place in the world. Now, the thing about uh, infertility treatments is that oftentimes they're incredibly expensive. Yes. And that may put it out of the reach of someone who doesn't have the resources or to be able to afford that. That is true. I decided to take a cheaper route, mm-hmm. <laughs> intrauterine insemination, where they take your spouse's sperm or the sperm of a donor mm-hmm. <laughs> and they uh, just inject it in you. And it's hopefully a faster way to get you pregnant. They did not work. I'm turning 40 this year, so I've 
trying to digest that. <laughs> and so I'm saying that to say I'm considering doing IVF. I'm not sure just yet. I have no idea if I'm going to take that route because struggling with infertility is an emotional journey. And right now, mental wellness is my number one priority for myself. Yeah. And we still live in an insensitive world where we come across men and women. But the one thing I, I would like to say is that there are many misconceptions about infertility, mm -hmm. right? Most people think it's the woman, right? Most <laughs> women think, oh, it's myself. I'm, I'm the one that's, that's cursed here. But that's not the case. According to Resolve, the National Infertility Awareness With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com association one in eight couples struggle with infertility one-third of those cases are attributed to men another one-third are attributed to women and then you have one-third uh, that includes a combination of both the male and female and so I want people to know just that do not blame the woman if you're in a relationship don't blame your spouse Know that it can be a combination and infertility does not discriminate. No matter your race, no matter your gender, it does not discriminate. Uh, for black women, in our community, we typically don't talk about much, right? We don't see a therapist. We don't share our personal business. It's important to talk about this issue and topic because it promotes mental wellness. And so... April 21st through April 27th is National Infertility Awareness Week. So if you know someone who's struggling with it, if you want to support a friend, be very open about it and just volunteer, talk to someone, just share your story, stand in your truth. In fact, I started with the blog, Give Me a Ring and a Baby. And then I, out of nowhere, I decided to create a hashtag called hashtag her normal hmm. to encourage women to embrace their normal. My normal is I'm married and I'm childless, but there's nothing wrong with that. And so, Hey, during national infertility awareness week, Talk about it and embrace your normal, whatever that may be. And Resolve is an organization that you can turn to that has all kinds of information about infertility yes. and provides support for those who are going through this process. Yes. In fact, during that week, the hashtag that people should make sure they include on their social media is hashtag infertility uncovered. We need to uncover this and we need to talk about it. It's a disease. 
It's not a curse. It's truly a disease. And some states are recognizing that. In the state of Delaware, uh, for an example, they, they're they recognizing it and encouraging women to, thanks to the bill, Senate Bill 139, uh, to be exact, it's a bill designed to help couples expand their families by uh, insurance companies helping to take off some of that cost because it's just it's it's expensive. It is. It is expensive and it is a medical condition. And uh, more and more insurance companies are paying for it or are covering it. I have to say that that wasn't the case in my case. I, I can't even tell you how much money we spent out of oh, pocket. No. It was it's painful. Um, but uh, a very odd story I'll have to share is okay. that, uh, you know, there are all sorts of infertility treatments that you have and they come in little capsules and stuff. Yeah. So I finally said, you know, this is it. We're going to adopt. And I gave them all to my friend who was going through the same process. That cycle, she got pregnant. Wow. With my medications. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. It was great. That was awesome. Yeah. It was awesome. Awesome. So um, I think it's very important for us to have this open conversation about infertility because it does affect so many couples and and also individuals who, you know, maybe aren't a couple, but they want to get pregnant for whatever reason. So mm-hmm. very important that we have an open conversation as friends and family. We need to understand what the sensitivities are yeah. for someone who's going through that process. And Nichelle McKelvey Polston, I want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing with us your story. Thank you. You're listening to Insight. I'm Lorraine Ballard-Marl. I'm so pleased to have in the studio with us City Councilwoman Maria Quinones-Sanchez. She covers an area that has been at the heart of the opioid epidemic and also at the nexus of many challenges that face the city of Philadelphia, including poverty, lack of affordable housing, and certainly the drug addiction problem that we're having uh, in Kensington. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation opportunity to have a conversation about our challenges. Well, let's talk about those challenges. Uh, many of the folks who live in your district have been concerned about the fact that it seems all of a sudden we're really paying a lot of attention to the uh, substance abuse problem, but this is not new. This is not a new problem. And what's new is just how we've been approaching it. So I wonder if you can kind of give us a little bit of an overview from your point of view. Yeah. And for me, it's hugely important. I I lived this through the 80s, living in Hunting Park through the crack epidemic, and we literally arrested our way out of every... The addicts got arrested, the homeowners got arrested, houses got confiscated. um, And no one ever really went back and did what I call restorative investments, right? We, We had a neighborhood that was really broken and and I'm very proud of to represent Hunting Park. And have, having lived through that experience, I always understood that in Kensington, there has always been a drug problem per se. But over the last, prior to the Kenny administration, I spent eight years debating with Commissioner Ramsey about open air markets. And he would often say, well, we don't have any open air markets. And I'm like, Ramsey, come to Kensington. We still have them. Under the Kenny administration, as this opioid epidemic was was spiraling, watched a growing presence of folks who were not residents to the neighborhood coming through. Right. And then we had the Gurney Street cleanup. We had Dr. Oz come in and all of a sudden we were the Walmart heroin capital of the world. Not to mention the New York Times article. New York Times everywhere. So so I think what we had was a brewing storm, a perfect storm of all bad policy decisions. There was a decision that because we were doing harm reduction, arresting our way out of the situation was not an answer. And we let 
700 people congregate in Kensington who are, for the better part, uh, homeless, right? So they are in the streets, all over the streets, very openly. Then we let the drug market kind of contain itself in that in that environment. And while the police and the DEA and others, uh, Attorney General Shapiro and others have been making arrests, the fact of the matter is that if you go to Kensington at 7 o'clock, by 7.15, you'll know where the drugs are free, you know, where it's the free corner. There's this a bunch of different things layered. The more dangerous part of this is that the drug dealers that are there are not from the neighborhood and really come with the guns and violence that the neighborhood had never really experienced, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so when Doña Juana knew Jose, the drug dealer who was so-and-so's kid, right? He, Jose respected Doña Juana and, you know, there was a code of how you operated. Folks that are coming in don't know the neighborhood, don't know the residents, where you had one corner that was managed by one person. Now you can have four different cliques managing a corner. And therefore, when people cross the street, you see the violence, you see the gun violence. And what we've seen in Kensington is the spike in gun violence, people getting caught in the crossfire of some of this. So you have all these layers, deep poverty, the working poor. There are a lot of great people in Kensington who some are stuck, but a lot of people really do love Kensington. If you're from that neighborhood and and you've grown up in it, so you have those folks who are stuck, the seven homeless folks that we've kind of you know allowed to stay in the area, right? And then you have this drug epidemic, and all of those things combined create a really intense situation. So there have been lots of different uh, strategies for trying to address it. As you mentioned, there was moving out people from those uh, drug encampments. Um, there was an effort to try to create harm reduction site, a safe injection site, which at this point uh, we, we're putting that on hold. The question is we haven't really had a comprehensive strategy. And it seems as it's been basically like a whack-a-mole. You, you hit a mole at one place, it pops up in the other place. We haven't really figured out a way to stop the cycle. Given your experience and, and your knowledge of the neighborhood, what would be the strategy that you would recommend? So I have said, and again, I did a walkthrough last week with the district attorney, Larry Krasner, and with Commissioner Ross, there is an, a lack of political will to disrupt the behavior. And when I say disrupt the behavior, I mean disrupt the behavior by permitting the police department to reclaim those corners. We saw that under the Mayor John Street era, where he literally took over, you know, several hundred corners throughout the city. And some people in the administration will say, well, that didn't work, except if you were in a block that you finally could sit on your step, you would say, no, it did work, right? Weed and seed. Yeah, right. Weed and seed, safe streets, all of that. So there has to be a willingness to provide the police department with that level of resources that we reclaim those drug corners that we know are open air, right? And that we do the kinds of coordination. And there's some of that going on with Attorney General uh, Shapiro and others to, for more um, aggressive arresting of mid-level, those types of things, because you, you arrest a person in the corner, it keeps going. But then there's the lack of political will around disrupting if we agree that a person who is in addiction has a disease and they are in no control of their disease we can't let them make decisions about them controlling the quality of life for everyone else so they are in this disease which will be a lifetime recovery cycle for them right and they'll go in and out of treatment but in the meantime they are allowed to loiter and disrupt 
the right of way and public safety of long term residents. And so there's this unwillingness to say, okay, we can't 302 all these people, but we have to remove them. Because essentially what we've said to the drug dealers is you have a captured market of 700 people, right? Who are your consumer base? They don't have money. So in order for them, to take the six to eight hits a day that they need. They're stealing every flower pot, every chair, every grill. So essentially, we've said all of these things that we're unwilling to disrupt continue to happen. We are normalizing trauma for young people, and we will not know the effects of this long term for a long time of these young people who openly see people shooting up every single day on their way to school. So the political will is just not there to say it doesn't matter what zip code you live in. I hear people say that, but then I watch what they do. And in Kensington, as much as the city is doing some of the cleanups and we're doing some of the work, we've lit up the L with LED lighting and other stuff until we disrupt the behavior and take on the political hits that may come. And this is about national media. Everybody's concerned about how they're looking at how Philadelphia handles this. And we're forgetting about, thankfully, those voices, Sharon Farrell and other community activists have really said, you know, we've been patient. We've been empathetic. We've allowed the city to open up respite centers. We've not denied our historical challenges with drugs. But this is at a different level and enough is enough. So you talk about the lack of political will. Where do we need to fire up that political will? Where does that have to come from? I think the mayor and the managing director's office, I mean, we've been talking about this for a long time, right? So the debate has been, I've said the majority of the people in Kensington are not from Kensington, right? So they do this survey with the University of Penn and in a self-identifying question, they ask people, are you local? Are you from here? So then they come back and say, well, 80% of the people are from Philadelphia. Okay, so assuming that I agree with them, which I don't, and I've been very vocal about, I totally disagree because what they don't tell you is that the University of Penn also asked those folks are, have you interfaced with our health behavioral health system within the last year? And all of them have said yes, which means that in order for us to treat these folks at some point or another, we made them a Philadelphia residence for purposes of billing and and reimbursements. Right. Right. So the stats are wrong. The stats are just I just, you know, I, I continue to push back on that. But assuming they are from Philadelphia. Right. Then why are we insisting that we're going to be able to house 700 people if they have a home? They're from Philadelphia, right? And what we're lacking is a really comprehensive reunification plan to get families to accept their loved ones back home. Because we're not going to be able to house them. It costs us about $28,000 to do housing and wraparound services for every person in, in addiction. Now, I just have to say, only because we're running out of time, that there are a lot of people who feel very powerless around this issue. And I wonder if you have any suggestions on what individuals can do as citizens. Well, I think one of the things that we've asked folks to do, and, you know, the mayor's emergency declaration permits people to call 311, dial the special code 4, and people need to call in all of this. The data is important, right, for us to gather the data around loitering when you see the open air markets, whatever disruptive behavior is going on, that it constantly gets recorded because we need folks to feel like they can call that the data is being captured and the data is used to inform kind of the responses as it relates to the police strategy component. You know, I know people feel 
that they don't want to create a police state in Kensington by saying, you know, we need police presence everywhere. But we actually do. And I think in, in Kensington, people welcome that. They feel like the police's hands are tied. And so t- police will say, well, we don't want to arrest. People are not getting prosecuted. So we we are living out the prophecy of don't call because nothing gets done because police can't do nothing and, and police does, don't do, you know, it's this cycle. And and that's why I keep saying there has to be a disruption in this storm that we've allowed to form in Kensington. If people would like to contact your office, what's the best way to do that? So they can call a 311 at any time. 311 connects people to council offices, but if not, 215-686-3448. You know, Councilman School and I, who share this area, have really tried to be as proactive. I know people feel incredibly frustrated, and we really do need the mayor to give face. You know, I always tell my team that when people are angry and frustrated, that means they care. And and as elected officials, it is our responsibility to listen and really hear what they're saying and provide leadership to provide some common resolution. And we're not there yet. Right now, we're in a situation where we thought we were we had agreed that we were going to close down the respite centers, transition and reclaim the Carter because we had broken it. And that's why, you know, the whole proposal for a safe injection site in the middle of that conversation sucked up all of the goodwill yeah. and all of the air in the room with, again, civic leaders who have been incredibly responsive and incredibly supportive of us trying to help people and meet them where they are. Well, you have certainly been out there in the community at uh, the various town hall meetings on these issues, along with Councilman Squilla. We want to thank you so much for joining us today, giving us some perspective from right there on the ground. Maria Quinones Sanchez, Philadelphia City Councilwoman. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'm Lorraine Ballard Morrow. Thank you for listening to Insight. You can stream today's interviews by going to our website and typing in keyword community and clicking on the podcast tab. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Lorraine Ballard. That's Lorraine with one R. And do something positive for your community. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.